you turn to Mark 13, we're actually going to finish that chapter. That just leaves a few more to go. Mark chapter 13, and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for being with us here tonight, and we thank you for anointing your praise, Lord, that we could give glory to your name, and thank you for your presence here. Just ask you to open your word up to us, that it would help us in whatever our needs are tonight. Help us to be ready for your soon coming, and we thank you, Lord, you'll speak to us in that way, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in Mark 13, and we're going to read, starting in verse 24, to the end of the chapter. And it says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels... And shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is near or nigh, even at the doors. And verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore... For you know not when the master of the house comes, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. There's a lot of watches in there. So we've been looking at Mark 13, and it's commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is because Jesus has gone with his disciples. He's left the temple for the last time. He's walked down the Valley of Kidron up on the Mount of Olives, and he sat there. And they come and they ask him two questions. Up in verse 4, they ask him two questions. Tell us, they say, he's just told them that not one stone is going to be left upon another in the temple. And they say, tell us, when shall these things be? That's the first question. And the second one is, what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? So when they ask him, when shall this be? They're wanting to know, when is the temple going to be destroyed? That's the first thing they want to know. And then when it says, what sign shall all these things be fulfilled? By all these things, we know it would do you good to read, you know, Matthew 24, Luke 21, along with Mark 13, because they all are speaking of the same event, but they'll give you different details. So we know from Matthew's account, when they say, by all these things, when shall all these things be fulfilled? He means, and they mean, what is the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? I mean, they're asking him, when is the world going to end? So we have to understand the questions they're asking from their perspective. So a first century Jew, they had this view of the end times, which would be a little different than ours. So they're looking for the Messiah to show up, to arrive, to come. He's going to put down all the wicked kingdoms of this world. He's going to establish his own kingdom, and he's going to reign from the throne in Jerusalem. And when he reigns, his rule is going to be one of peace and righteousness. And so they know that. And what none of them 
had thought and they're having a hard time grasping is the fact that when this Messiah shows up and they know Jesus is him, they're not wondering if he's the Messiah, God's anointed. They've already confessed that and he's affirmed it. What they're having a hard time grasping is that he's going to show up and not immediately establish his kingdom, that he's going to die and be resurrected and come back. They're having a hard time grasping all that. They want to know, hey, when is all this stuff going to happen? That's what they're asking. When are you going to be setting up your kingdom? You're talking about dying and all that. When's it going to happen? And so when he appears to them, when our Lord appears to them in Acts chapter 1, after his resurrection on the Mount of Olives, again, that's what they're back there in Acts chapter 1, they ask him this. They say, Lord, will you at this time? So they're like, well, we realize it didn't happen when you got crucified and put in the grave. But now that you're resurrected and you're back, is it going to be at this time? Will you at this time restore again? And they knew the promises, and they're still valid. So there's a lot of Christians today that teach that Israel is the church. And I'm saying the Jews, the Christian Jews, then they knew this. They're asking him, when is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? Because the church and Israel are never confused in the New Testament. So they're anxious. They're wanting to know, hey, is it time for these Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled? We're ready for it to happen. That's what they're asking him right there. And what was Jesus' answer to him? Y'all remember? Acts chapter 1, he says, It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his power. So he's saying, it's not for you to know. Because what does he tell them? This is what you need to be concerned about. He's saying, your concern is you go and you pray that you will receive power. He's saying your concern needs to be that you're going to receive the Holy Spirit so that you can go out into this world because this is what you're going to be doing until I come back. And you're going to testify and you're going to witness. And how is a lot of that done? I was thinking about this. I was sharing about this the other day. and This isn't in my notes. But we contend to put down healing and supernatural healing by the power of the Holy Spirit. What was it that characterized Jesus's ministry? constant miraculous healing, wasn't it? That's what drew the multitudes. When they come back and they receive, he says, you're going to receive power to witness. How is that manifested? You got Acts chapter 3. Here's this lame man that has been sitting there 40 years, miraculously healed. That brings the crowds, doesn't it? That gives Peter then the opportunity to share about the gospel, doesn't it? You don't get away from that. I mean, in Acts chapter 4 then, when they're brought before the council because of that, what's their prayer? Their prayer is, give us boldness to preach your word. But they don't stop there, do they? They say, also, anoint us so you stretch forth your hand that the holy child Jesus will perform wonders, signs, and healings. And that's what we have happening all through the book of Acts, don't we? I mean, Peter, when he goes to Joppa, What is it that really draws the crowds there? Dorcas dies. It's the signs and wonders. He raises her from the dead. And I mean, a bunch of people came to the Lord as a result of that. It's just all through the book of Acts. So why downplay healing? Why downplay? I mean, that is a means of evangelism. It's the major means of evangelism. And it's still the number one need of people, isn't it? Healing and deliverance, I'm saying it is. He's telling them, don't be all concerned about figuring out the end time puzzle. And it can get to be a puzzle. He's saying, your concern needs to be that you're going to receive this power. And you need to be concentrating on the fact that I want you out witnessing. That's the work that I've given you to do. Be more concerned with lost souls. And they're standing there after he says that to them. And they're watching. And he says they watch him ascend up with a cloud, receiving him out of their sight. 
That's the way he goes away. And it says there's two angels that are standing there next to him when all that happens. And they say this. They said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And we'll be talking about that's the way he's going to come back in the clouds. Except it's not going to just be a few people from Galilee seeing him. It's going to be the whole world, isn't it? It's going to be quite an event. So what our Lord has laid out here in Mark 13 and as I said, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 It's a basic guideline for all of human history from the point he's saying this right on. So all of the details aren't filled in. All of the ebbs and flows of history aren't spelled out in detail. But we know what will happen, don't we, based on what he said. Because he said heaven and earth will pass away, and it will. This heaven and earth will pass away. But he says my words will never pass away. It's all going to happen just like he says here. So here's what we do know. I'm saying so you get caught up in the world. We know because of what Jesus says that there is never going to be world peace that has come through the U.N. Right. We know we're not going to democratize all these Arab nations and we're going to bring peace by doing that. And we also know that because you use too much hairspray, that's not going to cause this world to collapse or because I mowed my lawn one too many times with a gasoline powered engine. It's not going to cause this world to collapse. So in saying all that, I better say this, the day and age we're in, I am not saying we can just abuse the environment, you know, throw your trash out the window because who cares, it's all going to be destroyed. Don't do that. If you're riding with me and you throw your gum out the window, I'll say something to you. That's littering, it could kill a bird. So I'm not saying that, but all I'm saying is we know how the earth's going to be destroyed. So he's laid out what's going to happen in human history. That's what he's done here for us in Mark 13. From the time he's talking there on the Mount of Olives until his second coming, And that second coming of the Lord is going to end the world as we know it. So he's told us what to expect. Look in verse 23 of chapter 13 in Mark. He says, but take ye heed, pay attention. He says, behold, I have foretold you just a few things. He says, I foretold you all things, everything we need to know about how history is going to work out. He's told us, and that's what we know. So that's how he's laid it out here. Human history of Mark 13, verses 5 to 13, which we've already covered That's history from then up into and including our present day. And he says, what's going to characterize human history is going to be this. There's going to be false teachers and deceptions. That's the first thing he mentions. There's going to be wars and cold wars. That's the rumors of wars. Cold wars. There's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be persecution of true believers. Wasn't he right on that? I mean, that's happened from the first century, and it's continued right on up, up into our present day. And it's increasing in frequency and intensity, I would say. So I don't know whether you know this or not, but there's been more Christians martyred in the last 200 years than there were in all of the previous 1,900 years since the Lord died combined. And I could go on about the earthquakes or increasing in frequency. That's just a scientific fact, and on and on and on. Thing is, though, the Lord said we're in the category of these things are going to happen. We can have hurricanes down in Florida. That doesn't mean that the end is going to be like tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, in five years, does it? Because he said, just don't get all upset when you hear of wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters. He says these things must needs be. They're going to happen. We looked at last week, verses 14 to 23. So that describes what? 
the last seven years of human history. He takes us all the way from there up to the present day. We don't know how much longer it's going to be until this last seven years transpires what's known as the tribulation. But we know this much from what the Bible says, and that is that it's still in the future. One thing, though, during that seven-year period, everything that's characterized previous history is going to reach its climax. That's what's going to happen. And so look what it says in verse 19. It says, For in those days during this tribulation, great tribulation, there shall be affliction or tribulation such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created, he says, unto this time and neither shall be. So it's going to be unprecedented calamities, disasters, judgment. It's going to be a time you don't want to be here. And so if you want the details of what that time's going to be like, we went through it last week, and if you didn't get enough last week and you want to reread it, go back to Revelation 6, chapter 6 through 19, and it'll tell you. It'll fill in all the details of what he's talking about there. You know, verses 14 to 23, they're particularly emphasizing what period of the tribulation, though? The last three and a half years. And that's triggered by what event? We have it there in verse 14. It's triggered by the abomination of desolation. That is when the last three and a half years of the seven-year covenant, the Antichrist will break it, and that's what's going to happen. From there on out, those last three and a half years are going to be terrible, absolutely terrible. And it's going to all end how? Here's what it says. Look what it says in verse 24. Now we're picking up the new part here. But look what it says in verse 24. In those days after that tribulation, so after it's over with, this is what's going to happen. This is when we need, you need to kind of start worrying about what's happening up in the heavens until that time. It says, the sun will be darkened, the moon shall not give her light. Verse 25, and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be what? They'll be shaken. You know where that's from? That's taken from Isaiah 13. Um, there's several other places in Joel and Amos that both talks about the sun being darkened and all that. But if you would, put something there and turn back to Isaiah. This is all talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a single day, but it's a period of time over which events take place. Isaiah 13, beginning in verse 6. And it says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty, and therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travails, and they shall be amazed one at another, and their faces shall be as flames. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. It's cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. And here's where we have what we have in Mark 13, verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and it's going forth. And so the moon gets its light from the sun. So he says, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Verse 11, and I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a man, because there's not going to be many left, a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. And therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. 
it is going to be a very distressing time for anybody that is on the earth then. It's going to be a terrible time. And Luke describes it this way. If you read Luke 21, he says the same types of thing that it says here in Isaiah 13. He says, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven will be shaken. So he uses a lot of the same language that we just read out of Isaiah 13. So it's going to be just darkness and gloom and destruction, isn't it? It's going to be terrible. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? We're going to wake up tomorrow more than likely and look out our window. I'll look out my back window. I'll have birds chirping, deer running through my yard. They're running through there all the time now. And the sun will be shining. It'll be beautiful. It'll probably be Thursday or Friday because I don't think the sun's coming out tomorrow. But you know what I'm saying, right? But here's what's going to happen, though. In the midst of all of that chaos and darkness, suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ is going to break through all of that in his glory and his majesty. That's what's going to happen. Break through that darkness. And it says in Matthew 24, 27, for as lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. I've seen several of them that to me, they were just incredible. I was one time at my sister's house in Ohio and I just stood out in New York. They had this lightning storm. I have never seen anything like it. Lightning bolts would just light up everything. It was unreal. It's just incredible. And I'm saying, if you've ever seen anything like that, I've seen several of them in my lifetime, more than just a regular thunderstorm. I mean, those will be just pale in comparison to the seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory just break upon all the darkness and gloom at that time. He's going to come in his power and his glory. That's what it says if you go back to Mark 13. That's what it says in verse 26, Mark 13, 26. Verse 25, the stars of heaven will fall, powers that are in heaven will be shaken, but then they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And not just in any way, it says with great power and great glory is the way it's going to be. Great power and glory and every eye on earth will see him. You say, how is that possible? It'll be possible. It's going to be another dimension breaking through our dimension and every eye is going to see him. That's incredible, isn't it? I really think it is. It's just kind of hard to imagine. But what it's going to be, though, is he's coming in his great power and glory into the people on this earth. It's going to be a full revelation of who he really is. Because the first time he came, he was veiled, wasn't he? In his flesh. And so the only time that veil was taken away was when? On the Mount of Transfiguration, taken away temporarily. And only a few of his disciples saw that. But this is going to be his glory revealed to the entire earth. It's not going to be like the first time he came. And they're going to see who is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he comes back that way. That's what it says in Matthew 24, 30. It says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What we need to see is when he comes back, it's going to be what I would call a mixed bag. For the unsaved, it will be terrible. 
because what's going to happen for them is they're going to realize that they have been deceived. And the one they hate, the one they never wanted to bow the knee to, is the one they just missed it big time. That's what they're going to realize. It's going to be terrible, and it's going to be a time of judgment for them. If you would turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look what it says there, beginning in verse 6. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, because this is what it will be like for the sinners and the unbelievers at that time, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy. And we need to pray for ourselves, don't we, that we're counted worthy to escape all that. Of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's going to be a bad time for the wicked, isn't it? The unbelievers at that time, they're going to be judged, and it'll be terrible. It'll be terrible. But on the other hand, I said it was a mixed bag. So remember we talked last week, we gave the verses where it says of Israel, two-thirds of the nation will perish, but one-third will be saved. And for them, when he comes back and touches down on the Mount of Olives, it will be for them a blessing beyond description. They will be so glad to see him. So if you would, turn to Zechariah. This is the other side of the coin. This is their deliverance. Look in Zechariah chapter 12. You could read 12, 13, and 14 to get the full picture. We won't read all of those chapters. But if you look in Zechariah 12, this is what happens when he comes back. We could start in verse 8. In that day, it's talking about the day of the Lord when he comes back. Verse 8. Zechariah 12, 8, in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's what he's going to do. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So they're seeking to destroy Jerusalem, and he comes back and destroys them. And look what it says in verse 10. And here's the mercy that he has on Israel. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness of his firstborn. They're going to realize he was their savior all along. They've been rejecting him. But it's going to be the spirit of grace and something. In other words, he's granting them repentance unto life. The whole nation. What's left of it? And so look down in chapter 13, verse 1. And it says, in that day, that same time, there shall be a fountain open to whom? 
the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so he's, they've mourned and they've repented and he's saying here's where they get cleansed from their sin. They're going to have that fountain open, it says at the end, for sin and for uncleanness. He's gonna, they are going to be purified, white, righteous, the whole nation of Israel. And if you look over in chapter 14, look what it says there beginning in verse 1. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity. The residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee like ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And look down in verse 9. And the Lord after that shall be king over all the earth. Because what happens after that? When he comes back, he sets up his millennial kingdom. I mean, it's clear as day to me. You read Revelation 20, it says a thousand years he's going to reign. That's what it's saying there in verse 9. He'll be king over all the earth. And in that day, there shall be how many kings on the earth? One Lord and his name one. And look down in verse 11. And men shall dwell in it. And there shall be no more. All the destruction, he'll change it all. He'll clean the earth up. And it says at verse 11, men shall dwell in it. There shall be no more destruction. And Jerusalem shall be, is it going to get messed up anymore? Are the Jews going to have to be afraid anymore? They are going to be able to what? Safely inhabit Jerusalem from there on out. What a blessing. And it'll be a blessing. So his coming is going to be bad for some and but a real blessing for others. And so back in Mark 13, it says there in verse 27, and he comes back in great power and glory in verse 27, then he shall send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. So it talks about his angels are going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. So I believe there's going to be Jews and Gentiles that are saved on the earth that God has protected from the Antichrist that are still alive. They're going to be gathered by his angels. You know, Revelation 12 talks about the woman that is given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. And it says when she does that, this woman that has given birth to the man-child, and so Satan is after her, but it's saying she's going to be nourished or cared for. If you read Revelation 12, it says it's going to happen for three and a half years. So she's going to be taken care of by God supernaturally. I don't exactly know how that's going to work out. But for three and a half years, it says from the face of the serpent. Because if the serpent had his way, he would devour her. That's what would happen. But believers are protected. Some believers, some are martyred, but some are protected. Because somebody's going to be here. He is going to judge all the ungodly. They're done when he comes back. But somebody's going to inhabit the earth with real people and children and families during the millennium. Those are the ones that are going to gather them together. And that's the way it's going to happen. Luke 21, 28, I like this. He says, when you see all these things begin to happen, 
He's saying, you see all this coming and you're one of the saved ones? Don't despair. So it's not that he says, look up. Then look up, lift up your heads. Why? For your redemption draweth nigh. We sing that song, don't we? That's the way it's going to be. And so in verse 28, we look and says what? He says, Jesus tells him, he says, all right, now learn a parable of the fig tree when her branch is yet tender and puts forth her leaves, you know that summer is near. He sets a parable, and I'm telling you, it's, the parable is not hard to understand. So in Palestine, most of the trees there are evergreen trees, but the fig tree is like most of the trees that we have around here, loses its leaves in the fall, and then in the spring they begin to bud and come out, begin to leaf out. And as we know here, when that happens here in the spring, you're looking at it and you're thinking, buddy, the temperature's getting a little better and summer is just around the corner. Kids are going to be out of school. That's as simple as what it says. But then he applies it in verse 29. He says, so in like manner, just like that happens, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that it is near. He's talking about his second coming, even at the doors. So in like manner, when you see these things come to pass, what are these things? So I think it's all of the things he described in verses 14 to 23. When you see the abomination of desolation and everything else that goes with it, when you see that happen, he's saying you can know that the second coming is at the door. That's what he's telling us here. And so verse 30, he goes on to say, And verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass away. The ones that see all these things shall not pass away till all these things be done. So what he's telling us is all those events are going to happen when? All the things that are pointing towards it's going to be seen are going to happen in one generation let me tell you, they haven't happened yet, have they? They haven't happened yet. And let me remind you of what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says this. We need to remember this. That you be not soon shaken, he wrote the Thessalonians, in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. He's telling them all, don't let somebody tell you that it's here. And we've had that happen a lot of times where people just start sounding this alarm like they know that it's going to be all these judgments are going to start in a year, two years. And people start doing things in reaction to that. And Paul's telling them, hey, don't start selling your houses. Don't quit working on your jobs. Don't quit getting married, having kids. In other words, he's saying don't quit living the Christian life. Don't quit being a Christian because you think it's going to happen in six months or two years or whatever because somebody wrote a book. Happens all the time. And he said, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come. This is what he went on to write. Except there come what? What's two things that have to happen? A falling away and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away. My words shall not pass away. This generation shall not pass till all these things be done. So those things haven't happened yet. But here's what we need to remember. They could happen at any time. So we could be that generation. It might be our children. We don't know. Because here's the point of all of this. We are not the ones that are setting the timetable, are we? Because that's why he goes on to say in verses 32 to 37, we've read it a few other times, we'll read it again. But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not even the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. So he says, take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time 
is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commanded the porter to watch. And he says, Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes at even midnight, cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And he says, What I say unto you, and he's speaking to all of us at the end, I say unto all, what does he tell us? Watch. So I believe the point of the rest of this chapter is it may not happen in our lifetime, but it might. Nobody knows. That's the point. So what are we to avoid? We've got to avoid the two extremes, the ones that sell all they have and join a cult and wait. Because this happened in 1992, October 28th. This church in Korea claimed, the Tammy Church, that at midnight that the world would end and that Jesus Christ would return to the earth, he would assemble 144,000 of the faithful, and with them he would take them and ascend up into heaven. That's what they said. So this pastor, Jang Lim Lee, I'm sure I said that wrong, they believed that God had disclosed a special mystery, which was the basis of their personal revelation. I'm saying anybody's going to tell me they're going to unlock the mysteries of the Bible for me. I'm avoiding that person. I'm just telling you. Anybody that guys all these mysteries and all that, it's not something I necessarily want a part of. I don't see that in the Word. And it all started, he had a member of his church. All these revelations and all this stuff was going to happen. It was some young man in 1988 started having these visions. And as on the basis of these visions, they kept getting more and more and all this information to where they, they got it down to this time and this date. And this is what was going to happen. And this movement, it wasn't a small movement, and it created confusion and distress among all the Korean churches and in their society. So many of the followers, they sold their property, quit their jobs. One woman even had an abortion. And the reason, to us this would sound crazy, she was serious, because she was afraid that if he came, the weight of the baby wouldn't allow her to ascend up with the Lord. And so she had an abortion. That really happened. You know how many people followed that? Christians? Orthodox Christian church in Korea is saying, we're not accepting that. But 100,000 people went along with that. That's a lot of people. 100,000 people. You know how that ended up? The pastor that supposedly had these revelations was charged with embezzlement and fraud. You know what he did? He collected $4 million from the people of his church. That's a lot of money from those Koreans. $4 million and invested it. So he said this was going to happen in October 28, 1992. He took the $4 million and invested almost all of it in bonds that would mature in 1993. <laughs> and he did two years in jail for that whole thing. So what we need to do is stick with the Word. The Word says in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He's saying you all should know that perfectly. And then the other extreme is, is whom? That's the people that doesn't think it probably isn't going to happen in my lifetime. No sense of expectation. And that's the evil servant that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. If you would turn to that. Turn back to Matthew 24. Verses 42 to 51. Matthew has a lot more to say about being ready for the Lord than Mark does. 
And we'll look at a little bit of that. So Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42, it says this. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man comes. Well, who then is this faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in their due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, verse 48, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. Doesn't think it's going to happen any time soon. Doesn't look like it. In verse 49, and he'll begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what he's trying to tell us here is with both extremes is we don't know when it's going to happen. And so because of that, we need to always be ready. Isn't that the point? Always be ready. The point is when the events begin to transpire, it is going to be too late to get ready because preparation can't be done in a day or a week or whatever, can it? It just doesn't happen that quick. The parable, and to further explain that and emphasize it, the next chapter, 25, really is, goes right along with chapter 24 because he goes into the parable of the ten virgins. And that follows the warning that we just read. And the entire parable is telling us what? The parable of the ten virgins. That we need to make sure that we're not caught unprepared. So look at the very end of it, Matthew 25, 13. Watch ye therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man comes. That's the bottom line of that parable. So the wise virgins were the ones that had the vision to see ahead and they took the extra oil with them. Because why did they do that? Because they knew that once that bridegroom came, they weren't going to have time to go get the oil, were they? They had to already have it. They had to already be ready. And the foolish were foolish because they had no foresight. They were living for the present. I was thinking about this with this whole being ready or whatever. Back in the early 80s, I don't remember the exact year. It was either 81 or 82, I believe, at the Indianapolis Seminar. I've told this story here before. Brother Hamilton, he had already got up in the pulpit. He was ready to speak. There was a woman there at that seminar that prophesied all the time. And whether it, it might have all been the Lord, I don't know. All I remember is he just getting ready to announce his, and, he, and all of a sudden she stands up and yay, yay again. And I'm thinking, man, oh man, I was annoyed with that whole thing. And she starts going on. What is she prophesying about? She starts prophesying about the ten virgins and the importance of getting oil in your lamps and all of that. I remember looking at Brother Hamilton because I'm thinking if that was me and I was him, I would be like doing something about this woman. I'd be at least I'd be upset. And he's sitting there. He was kind of standing there with the kind of a half smile on his face. I'm thinking, man, he is really taking that well. What she's doing here. He doesn't seem to be upset at all. Well, you know why? Because he announced his text and his text was Matthew 25, the 10 virgins. And the title of his sermon was, anyone know? Price of oil is going up. Going up. 
And I was thinking about that, and I thought, all right, that was back in the early 80s. Back in the early 80s. Let me say it this way. So I believe the, the word that we heard then is still the same word that we need to hear now. Separation from the world, picking up our cross, trusting God for everything, because my thing would be, has the Bible changed? And it never will. It's not going to change. And I'm saying there was an anointing on the word back then. I'm saying, or else I was deceived, and I'm still deceived. So I'm saying, I don't think so. I don't believe that we were deceived. I don't think the word, so some adjustments have been made. I think one of the things with our groups was evangelism wasn't very well spoken of. And that's, to me, that's changed. It's changed with me. I'm 100% behind any outreach evangelism. You preach the gospel, you will have my full support and prayers. I'm telling you that right now. But I'm saying, I think the word that we have heard, and he's saying then the price of oil is going up, and look what's happened to the word. The churches then, you could go to churches all over this country we're hearing the word that was preached then, and with an anointed word, almost all those churches, you could go anywhere. Where are they now? And so how much more has the price of oil gone up? Because that's what we're going to need to get through those end times that are coming, I believe. And look what it says here, and we're looking in Matthew 25. Because what I want to say is, his message was right, because oil is not free. Look what it says in verse 8. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell. And what did they tell him to do? They said, You've got to buy for yourselves. Didn't they? Isn't that what they said? So the foolish are told they're going to have to buy it. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought salvation is a free gift. It is, but it's not without spiritual effort. So Proverbs 23, 23 says this, buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. So there's going to be some effort involved. Jesus told the church in Laodicea, he said, you all are, and they were, they were materially wealthy and they were doing well. But he says, as far as that goes, but he says, you are dirt poor spiritually. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. He says, and you don't know. Isn't that amazing? He had to tell him. He's like, you're doing terrible spiritually. You're basing everything on how you're doing materially. And he says, you don't know. Do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. He's like, I'm going to have to tell you, hold a mirror up here to show you your true spiritual condition. And he says, I'm going to give you some free advice, some counsel. He says, I counsel you to buy. We're saying you've got to buy oil. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be rich. He's telling these rich people that because they're rich in the wrong way. So he tells them, you're poor, and I'm not going to just give you the gold. Did he? Did he say that? He says, you have to buy it. Well, how are they going to buy the gold that Jesus wants them to have? Gold in the ancient world, it was of no value unless it was tested by fire. And he told them they needed to buy gold from him that was refined by fire. 
a special gold. And the gold is the faith that Peter spoke of that is tried by fire. That's the gold they need, their faith tried by fire. And so that's how they're going to have to pay for the gold that Jesus is offering them by their endurance in trials. That's what we've been talking about on Sunday. So he told the church in Smyrna, there's only two churches in the book of Revelation that weren't rebuked, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And he told them, it's just the opposite situation there. He says, you all are in poverty. They had absolutely nothing. But he told them, you are rich. And why did he tell them that? Because they'd endured their trials. That's why. He says, I know your works and I know your tribulations. And they'd stayed faithful. And that's what it is. How are the virgins going to buy their oil that he told them they needed to? How are they going to do that? How do we buy oil? By watching. That's the whole point of what we're looking at in Mark. What does watching involve? Praying, reading your Bible, with meditation I would add on that, being a doer of the Word, doing what you're reading, and waiting on God. And all of that, I'm saying, if you're really doing those things in a diligent way, it takes effort, doesn't it? I'd say so. It takes effort. And it takes time. It takes time to buy your oil. So like I said, you're not going to be able, we've talked about this, you're not going to be able to build your ark in a day. It didn't take Ken Ham 120 years to build that ark, did it? But he didn't do it in a week either, did he? So that's the point of all this. Jesus is saying, hey, you need to watch and pray. You need to be diligent. You can't think he's not coming back and I got all this time. When I see these signs coming, I'll get ready then. He's saying we need to live ready at all times. That's the point of what he's saying. So what do you do while you're waiting? The next parable in Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents. And he says in there he gives each person the number of talents that they can use, that they're capable of with their ability they're capable of doing. And that's what you have. Look in verses 14 and 15. And it's still talking about the same thing, being ready for his coming. For the kingdom of heaven is a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants, delivered unto them his goods, and to one he gave five, to another two, and to another one, and to every man according to his ability. And he took his journey. It's the same kind of language that was used when we read back in Mark 13. For the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work. Waiting, watching, and praying. When he's saying that, that doesn't just mean to go down in your basement, to go in the attic, go wherever, take your Bible, and just sit there and pray and read whenever you're not actually working. That's not what he's talking about, is he? We all have something to do. We're expected to work while we wait because that is part of watching. If you go on and read the rest of this parable in Matthew 25, what about the servant that took his talent, took the Lord's talent he'd given him, and just hid it, didn't do anything? What did he say to him? That's the person that never witnessed to anybody, never gave, never overcame any of his trials, and Jesus called him a wicked and lazy servant. Look over in verse 25. He was afraid, went and hid thy talent in the earth, and lo, there thou hast that is thine. And his Lord answered and said unto him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I sow not, and gather not where I have not strawed. You ought us therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. And then he tells him to take that talent away from him. So we're expected, while we're waiting, this is part of it, to just be working, praying, reading our Bibles, as I said, doing the things that are clearly spelled out in the Bible that a Christian does. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians, we'll see where Paul basically tells them that. 
And it says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, but we quoted this earlier, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. He says, you are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober for they that sleep, sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. And look what he tells them to do in verse eight. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there's things we have to do, those that are of the day. And verse 9, he goes on to say, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Let me say this in closing. So I believe that as darkness is overtaking the earth, and I'm saying it is, darkness is overtaking this earth, I also think, on the other hand, that God's light and His saints will be shining. Because when I look at the, some of the darkest moments on this, just even recently, when you look at World War I and World War II, so World War I in the early 1900s, what also took place in the early 1900s? The outpouring of the Spirit, Azusa Street, happened at the same time. World War II around 1940s and 45. I mean, that was when God poured out His Spirit in great healing. A great healing movement took place then. His Spirit was being poured out. I think darkness is coming, but I think for us, I don't think it has to be a dark time. I don't see these worldwide revivals taking place. Well, I don't know that it can't happen here, and I don't know that it won't happen to where, just like in those dark times, you don't read in the history books about Azusa Street. You don't read that, but it was going on, wasn't it? I still think God is going to have a movement going on by His Spirit during that time. And I think that's something that we can look forward to and press in for and not think, oh, woe is me. It, it is getting dark. And I think what Paul is saying here, too, is I think that the dark and the light are going to become more and more evident. It already is becoming that way, in my opinion. And that's Malachi 3, isn't it? Malachi 3, 18, it talks about the end times. He says, then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. That gap between him that serves God and serves him not is just going to keep getting wider and wider and wider. I said that was the last verse. If you would turn to Revelation 22, I promise this will be the last one. Turn to Revelation 22, because it shows that. So you read Revelation 22 and verses 10 and 11, and these verses are going to show that there are not going to be neutral people in the end. All the fence travelers are going to be gone. Look what it says in Revelation 22:10. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work that shall be. And 
I was reading this that Derek Prince said this, and he says, here is the picture that's being painted here in these verses. The pressures are getting so strong, he's saying there are two streams, and he's writing this back in the 80s. There's two streams that are going, and the pressure are too strong that you're going to be either in the stream of the righteous or you're going to be in the stream of the wicked. And they're going to be very forceful to the point, he says, as time goes on, it's going to be impossible to escape either one that you're in. Either one. He says, and if we're in the stream of the righteous, we'll be carried on almost irresistibly by the power of that stream. He says, but if we are in the stream of wickedness and rebellion, then we will be carried on in the power of that stream and each will intensify to where he's saying there comes a point to where there's no getting over. And I think that is what that verse is saying there. And I do think that is what's going to happen. There's two harvests that are going to mature at the same time in the end, aren't they? And the harvest of righteousness and the harvest of wickedness. That's what it says if you read Matthew 13, verses 37 to 39. And right now we're making the decisions that are putting us in either one of those streams and where we're going to end up. Preparation doesn't happen at the last minute because, oh, here I see all these signs. I remember what was said. It's time to get. No, we need to be getting ready now. I think that's the point of all this. So good and evil are intensifying, I believe, right now. And the gap is ever widening. That's what I think is happening. So each of us here, what is that's a call for all of us, isn't it? That we have got to make a clear decision that we are going to be committed 100% to the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. And what we've been taught here, faithfully taught here, amen? That's what I see. So let me just, you can turn back or you don't have to, but in Matthew 13, let me just read those last few verses again. He says, watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes at evening, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, Jesus says, I say unto all. That's all of us here, right? We need to be watching. Amen? Now's the time to be watching. <laughs> all right. Praise the Lord. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that I just believe your light will shine in the darkness that's coming, and uh, just believe that you'll shine in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, and I just ask you'll direct us as a church to minister to those outside of our church that need to hear of your truth and that you will bring them to repentance and give them new life. And I just ask that our lights so shine that we can have an effect on people in that way in this time of darkness. And I ask you also, Lord, that you'll impress upon all of our hearts to be prepared for the end at all times, that we live prepared, because if nothing else, Lord, we don't know that we won't die at any day. There's no promise that we have of tomorrow. And also, Lord, I ask that you'll press upon anyone here that's not saved, the decisions they're making are sending them down a stream that they may not be able to get out of. And so I just ask you'll convict them and turn them around and, and grant them repentance. We truly pray for that, Lord. Just anyone here that's not saved, that you'll convict them by your Holy Spirit of their wickedness and their need to turn to you and that you will have mercy on them. Just like you will at Israel, you'll pour out your grace and supplication on them and show them a fountain that they can be cleaned in. And instead of feeling filthy and dirty every day, that they can be cleansed and know in their conscience that things are right between you and them. Just ask you to show them that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.